the less I focus or think about money, the easier it is for me to save it. Because, you know, the moment that I rationalize the amount of money that is going into a portfolio that I now don't have and it's being locked in, like I can get a bit of anxiety around it. So I have it automatically that on the first, everything goes, I don't see it, I don't touch it. Welcome to another episode of In Your Best Interest, your personal finance podcast. I'm your host, Philip Müller, and that was Jessica Ramella, the inaugural winner of the Apprentice One Championship Edition. Jessica has secured an employment contract worth 250,000 US dollars to work directly under the CEO of One Championship, Chatri Sidyotong, as his prodigy and chief of staff. And now, she's here with us today to tell how she came to win The Apprentice and how she's going to manage her new salary. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Hi, thank you for having me, Philip. Yes, it's very, very, very good to meet you again. Um, for all the listeners, I've met Jessica actually almost a year ago, I think. It's actually very, very close to a year ago today um, through another friend of ours. Um, and we had dinner. And I did not know that only a few weeks later, Jessica would enter um, the competition of um, The Apprentice. And we've never seen her again for a few months and didn't even know where she really was. So she never really surfaced again at a dinner. But uh, <laughs> hey, Jessica, it's so good to have you. Um, obviously, we were all a bit shocked when we heard that you were uh, at The Apprentice because I, you know, I, when I first met you, like I said, uh, you were still in the corporate world. You were telling me about your job and uh, all those things. So maybe first and foremost, maybe you can tell the audience a little bit, uh, you know, what is The Apprentice, uh, one championship edition, especially for our listeners who are not necessarily in Southeast Asia. Yeah, of course. I, uh, it's so funny. I remember that dinner perfectly. And I remember you saying something like, oh, we should meet in like a month's time and go for dinner or something like that. And in my mind, I knew that I wasn't going to be available. And I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> but um, so The Apprentice is, like you said, a reality TV show. Usually it, it's in the US and the UK and it's been running for 17 years. It's a huge enterprise. And essentially what it is, is a bunch of professionals, usually the same amount of men and women get together and compete to get the top spot, which would be either the to get a job at a certain company or to get funding for their own um, business in the UK. So usually it's targeted towards business, but this one, the One Championship edition had a bit of a twist. Because One Championship is the largest martial arts media property in Asia, they wanted to also find something that had an element of sport attached to it. So they were essentially looking for like the perfect corporate athlete. And the reason behind it was it not because they wanted to get someone that was good at sports, but because they wanted to have the grit of the fighters, the discipline, the, the warrior spirit. So the show has a new element in which you have to still do physical tasks and your business challenge uh, throughout each of the episodes. And each episode, someone gets eliminated and goes home. Now, super interesting. Uh, uh, you were talking about having the element of sport as well. Were you always sporty before? Or what was it, one of the criteria that they looked at before? during the, the, the casting? It was definitely a criteria that I looked in the casting. I think I did sports throughout my entire life, but I would have never considered myself an athlete or someone that was fit. Like I did sort of like football in school and like gymnastics and things like that. But I was always a little bit overweight. And then maybe in the past three or four years, I went through like this very big fitness journey and I lost a ton of weight. And 
I think that carried me through now and I still work out now and I go into the gym. I don't do a sport, but I, I work out a fair amount. And I think, thank God that was there because otherwise I would have never been casted. They, they wanted people that were fit. And to be honest, the show was so intense that I don't think you would have been able to get far if you didn't have an element of fitness. No, absolutely. So when I met you, you were still in a job. Yes. A month later or like literally four or five weeks later, right? You, 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 you joined uh, one championship. Were you still employed? Did you have to take the risk of, um, yeah, did you have to take the risk of actually um, quitting your job or how, how did that work out? Especially, you know, you come from a job, you might not win the competition, mm -hmm. so you might have no income. Um, and then I, I know, I, I assume that you're also on a, a work permit probably in Singapore, uh, like myself that means you have to leave very quickly if you don't have a job, right? So how, how did that, that, was that a stressful situation? Was it something like, oh no, that's just the risk I wanted to take? It was so, so stressful actually, because I had quite a lot of holiday racked up because of COVID and lockdown. So for me, I just told my boss the truth. I told him that I got cast on the show, that I wanted to do it. It was a one in a lifetime opportunity and that to let me take that holiday leave that I had and then to give me the rest as, as unpaid leave. And originally he was just not feeling very okay with the idea. He said yes, but he felt like I was betraying the company. Why did I want it to go? That my priorities were not in sync with the company. And I, I tried to explain to him like, this is a win-win situation. Like I'll be away for, let's say, best case scenario if I win eight weeks, but then you can use that as marketing. You'll still have me for like six months until I have to start my new job and we can find my replacement you know all of these type of stuff but to him like it was just never sitting right he felt like I was already jumping ship type of thing um so they told me they agreed that they were going to give me that uh time away and when I came out of the show after eight weeks uh once we had finished on the day or the day after they fired me And they essentially said that during this time, they decided that they realigned and that they couldn't take the risk of not having me and this type of stuff. So then they just fired me from one moment to another. Like my team was expecting me back the next day and I've never been fired in my life. It was a very, very weird situation. And also like to be fired after coming from winning the show, like, you know, I'm like, I am more valuable than this. Like I don't deserve this, you know, but That's what happened. And exactly what you said, I'm on a visa here. So I have 30 days to, you know, I, I went like, so after three years in the company, I've built your entire business in Asia. I started as one person here and now you have 30, like I talk about revenue, all this type of stuff. Now I have 30 days to leave the country and pack my bags. And there were, and it was two days before Christmas. Like it was crazy. Um, so man, I managed to convince them to not cancel my visa for a while. And that's what I did that allowed me for like the Christmas, New Year, holiday period to to just enjoy myself and just not have to worry. And then in January, they canceled it. And I luckily got one championship to to activate my visa. Yeah. Early on. Yeah. Because you couldn't tell anyone that you won because it wasn't even uh, uh, publicly um, released yet. Right. Exactly. It was At very, very stressful and I couldn't talk to anyone. I couldn't talk. To my friends, my it was actually a very isolating time in, in my life because you disappear for two, eight weeks. People don't know where you are. You're lying to them about where you were. Like I told people that I was in Spain visiting my mom. Then I'm not able to tell them the problems that I have with my previous with my previous job. I don't have a way to tell them about the new job that I have coming. I don't have a way of telling them 
what I'm feeling coming out of the show. I cannot tell them that I won. You know, I just felt like I was in this bubble where everything was a lie and I just wanted to be quiet all the time. Yeah, I, I can imagine how tough this is because you, on the one hand, you you have that high from winning, right? And being in such an intensive uh, competition for eight weeks. And then you have that low of like, oh, what am I going to do? Yeah. And not able to talk to anyone. Yeah, that's I, I can imagine that being super, super tough. If we take a step back, though, and we'll look a little bit more at The Apprentice, right? It's mm -hmm. obviously business challenges. What were some of the most memorable experiences throughout the competition? Also from a, yes, from a, from a challenging point, standpoint from, from the sport, but also from a business standpoint? I mean, this was probably one of the best experiences of my life. I had so much fun, even though it was torture. I think something that I'll never forget is that I slept on a good night. I would sleep like two hours a night. Um, and that's a good night. And I, I can't believe the, the, the strength and the resilience my own body was able to push through and manage to perform and, and think coherently on two hours sleep for eight weeks. So like, that's something that I think I'll never forget that really like stuck with me. But on the positive side, it's definitely the relationships that you build. You meet people from all over the world. The 16 candidates, we had people from nine different countries which is very different to the US, UK, which are people from those countries. So not only did you have to adapt to their careers, their personas, their backgrounds, the competition, also their culture, you know, and, and adapt to, to that part. Um, on the sports side, I mean, they were all super difficult. I think like the hardest for me was probably the BJJ challenge where we had to do some Brazilian jiu-jitsu And I had to go against this Russian girl that does martial arts and she made me eat the ground like there was no tomorrow. Um, I'm like a head taller than her. And she like she broke me into the next day. I could barely even move. I felt like a, a truck hit me. Um, so that was definitely interesting. And then in the business side, I think this This show was designed by, for someone that had gone through a lot of different roles or their role had to wear a lot of hats because we did marketing, we did sales, we did um, forecasting, we did customer service, we did so many little things. And I think if you don't have a good grasp of, you know, P&Ls and sort of a little bit of corporate finance, not super intense, but to the point that you can understand about margins and how you can actually upsell and all these type of things, it wouldn't, you, you wouldn't have been able to, to succeed. It, Chattery is very determined on like numbers and revenue and all these type of stuff that are, you know, of course, very important for a business. But I don't think that he would have gone with someone that wasn't com comfortable at all with the financial side of a business. Interesting. And I, I think that the sleep aspect was very interesting too, right? Two hours yeah. of sleep for eight weeks. That's pretty tough, right? Uh, but hey, it shows you that your body can probably do more than you you'd think beforehand, right? Because yeah. you thought obviously that wasn't possible before and it kind of it worked for a short period of time, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I it was a, it was definitely an interesting test of of how far I can push myself. Yeah. So then what did you think or what what do you think is the biggest factor or factors that contributed to your victory then i think that there's quite a few i think one of the main things is my I'm a, i'm a very i'm a people person and i think that was a determining factor towards the end i'm very good at sort of building relationships with people and you know i for the most part even though i had some very strong enemies in the show 
the majority of people really liked me and respected me. So like I got the respect from my peers. I was liked by them. And, and in this type of competition, like you, you need your team to get to the end. There's only one winner, but by yourself, you can't get there. So I think the fact that I was able to work with my team, work with the producers, work with Chatri, like he was able to see sort of like who I was as a person and, and my ability to be a, a people person, which is important as a chief of staff. But I also think a big differentiator that you see in the show is my sales ability. There's an episode where, you know, we need to actually go and, and sell to businesses and to people. And I think I had something like over $10,000 above everyone else or something like that. So like, I remember when this happened, I, I was so stressed about the, the sales challenge because it's typical that you say, oh, I'm a sales director. And then you go on TV and you barely sell anything and you humiliate yourself in front of the world. So, so what I, I was really stressed that I, this would happen out of bad luck, but actually it went great. And when I finished the sale, I think I closed something like 13K with this particular customer. And just to put it on, on perspective, everyone was closing maybe around 1,000. Some people close $200, you know, and I sold 13,000. So I remember when I came back and told my team, I was like, oh, I closed 13K. My my friend, just, one of the contestants corrected me and said, you mean 1,300? I was like, no, 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 I mean 13K. And they're like, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> we won. <laughs> like we were just like, it was a great, great moment um, for me and for almost like reassurance on my skills and like the hard work that I've put in the past 10 years of my life working. So yeah, it was they actually worked out. Huh? So sales skills. So do you think that's something that you would pass on to people uh, that that's one of the most important things in life to learn about soft skill or sales skills in general? It's, it's not necessarily, you know, you're selling something to people, but understanding people, uh, is, is that something that you would say is a very important life skill? I do think so. I think we are selling every day of our lives. Um, just me talking here to you, when you meet someone, when you are, you know, buying something in the supermarket, like we're constantly selling something, right? It may be your personality. It may be actually a product or it may be just like the fact that you want to convince someone to give you something for, you know, so everything is a negotiation. Everything is, is sort of like an exchange. Um, and I remember when I went into sales at this point, I never wanted to do sales, but it was the only job that I could find that had really transferable skills. So it was something that I did a bit of marketing. I did a bit of sales. I did negotiation. If I ever wanted to open my own business, I would have to know these things. Um, and I would learn about pricing and I would learn about budgeting and inventory and targets and commissions. So like all of these things sort of like made sense to me, uh, to, that I wanted to learn learn how to hit the phones, like so important, you know, and to read people and all these things. And also on the other side, it was the only job that I could find that the harder I would work, the more money I would make. So in sales, like if I hit my target or go above, I get a bigger commission. Any other job, it's it doesn't work that way. So at that moment, I really needed money. So I was just like, you know what, let's just try it out. And how hard can it be? Right. So, no, I agree. I, I like I always been in sales positions as well, and I think uh, well, same reasons probably too. Right after college, I moved to the U.S. I needed to find my own. I didn't want to rely on my parents, and I think you know when you look at the world of you know when you look at your career, I think sales is a very great place to start because first of all, you said hitting the phones. We used to have at Morgan Stanley, we had to call. I think if 
a thousand calls a day basically to get any kind of sale, right? To yeah. even have a conversation with people. It's very humili humiliating. Yeah. But uh, you really learn really quickly that a no is not that bad because you can call the next person and the next person. At some point, you, you get to your yes. I think those skills are super transferable. Yeah, I agree. And humbling. But like you said, I was exactly the same mindset, right? Okay, well, I can go in a career and you slowly progress over 30 years. Uh, you may, may make a little bit more money, but you're always at the at the ire of your boss, right, so to speak, whereas in sales, really the numbers speak exactly. a different language. There's not much, uh, and I'm, I'm a numbers person, so I think, you know, you produce numbers, there's no conversation. You don't have to have a conversation with your boss about it. They see it, right? Yeah. So for me, that was exactly the same experience uh, from that perspective. Yeah, but you, I love that. There's no discussion. It's not like if you don't like my style or you thought that I said it different, sorry, like the sales speak for themselves. It's not a matter of opinion. And in that regard, I, I really love it. And also, I mean, I love building rapport with people and reading them and reading the room and trying to figure out how to convince them and like turning a no into a yes so like all of that art of understanding human psyche like i really am passionate about so that then became more of more of a passion than just like this random nine to five job that i was doing for money yeah no it's, it's, i think super interesting and uh, same kind of thought process that i had when i went into it as well but if we go off topic from The Apprentice and we actually now go backwards in Jessica's life and as I mentioned in my introduction at you know age 18, you, you left Venezuela, your home country, but um, Venezuela obviously is in the news sometimes for the people listening, especially if they're interested in finances, it comes up, up quite a bit actually because we have the, one of the issues in, in a lot of the South American countries always is inflation, right? So um, can you explain a little bit when you were growing up back in Venezuela until age 18, how did you think about money? Were there any like, I don't know, any role models or your parents? How did they teach you about money? Kind of like the first experiences, um, you know, of saving or maybe even spending money. So growing up in Venezuela, I my parents were, I think, comfortable. I wouldn't say that I come from like a particularly wealthy family, but I never was missing anything. We would go maybe in one holiday a year. So like that gives you a bit of a, of, of an idea mm -hmm. of, of how things were. So I went to a good school. So in that sense, like I, I come from a good family. Um, and my parents were quite strict about money with regards to particularly my father with regards to earning whatever you get. So I'm an only child. And I think for them, it was really important to not spoil me and that I understood the value of money. So for them, it was very much like, well, if you wanted to, if I wanted to get a certain thing, I remember my dad would negotiate with me and tell me, okay, but you get an A on this test. And if I didn't get the A, unfortunately, like he would not buy me, you know, the watch or the present or whatever. Um, so first negotiation skills already learned there. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> and my mom, I feel like, she was very much of the same mentality, but a lot less strict in sense of, you know, I think for my dad, he would have been comfortable with me buying a pair of jeans when I was 15 and wearing it until I was 20. My mom understood that I was a teenager and I wanted to be fashionable and go out with friends and look good. So like every once in a while, like she would take me shopping and we would just buy a few things here and there. Um, but I, I think they were very also very strict in regards to having my own money. So they never really allowed me to have my own money or have the freedom to spend it on whatever I wanted. It was very much like, if you've earned it, we'll buy it for you. But I never had a alimony. I never, I never had a, 
I, they never would get me pocket money that, that I could just blow on whatever I wanted. So it was very much like, if you want it, you need to go ask your parents until I was 18, pretty much. Okay. And then at 18, what, what made you leave home? So the, situ the situation in Venezuela was pretty, it was a bit of a crisis, to be honest. And also at home at that time, like things were quite rocky between me and my father. And I just needed to, to go abroad. I also wanted to be an artist and explore the world and know cultures. And it's not particularly the, the normal path that I'm supposed to follow. So I know like in, for Venezuela standards, I always felt like a little bit like a fish of water with regards to this. So I just wanted to go overseas and see if I could find other weirdos like me or someone else that wanted to just, you know, not settle for whatever I've been sold my entire life, you know, which was a very linear life. And I moved to the States to, you know, go to college and I went to community college because, you know, I couldn't afford university. And it was just an opportunity for me to like get better at English, learn other cultures, get better studies, you know try to study or make something out of myself. And there is where things start really like changing, right? Because I go to community college for two years and then two years later, you have to go and do university. That's kind of how it works in the States. But as an international student, you pay an arm and a leg for Very university. Expensive. I mean, <laughs> even community college was incredibly expensive for being community college. Yeah. But at that time in Venezuela, we have something that is called a currency control. So uh, you couldn't get dollars in, in the country. You couldn't just go to your, to your bank and buy dollars, even at a crazy extortionate rate. So what's happening is that the only place that you could get dollars would be in the black market. So then imagine you're paying international school fees, which are in the hundreds of thousands, plus black market rates. Like It was impossible for my parents to, to pay for it. They did pay for my community college. But at that time, it got to the place where they said, unfortunately, we just can't pay for this any further. And at that moment, I had to kind of like come up with a plan. And I decided to I decided to move to London. So I have an Italian passport from my, my parents side. I had never lived in London, never been there, but I already spoke English coming from the US. And I thought, you know, what's the worst that could happen if I hate it? I'll just go somewhere else. But at least I can probably go to university there for free. That was my thinking, which I was wrong, but that was the plan when I was 20. That's why my, I went to high school in the U.S. when I exchanged here to learn English as well. And uh, when I, I wanted to stay and go to university there, and then I went to look at some universities and I showed my dad in Germany, sent him, hey, how much it costs, right? And he said, you can come, you can come back, it's free here, right? So, you actually, so I went back to Europe, right, uh, for the same reasons, actually. Yeah. But yeah, it's so expensive there. It's crazy. Um, and then what happens is I arrive to London And I apply to university. I'm like excited that I'm just going to do two years and I'm going to finish. Turns out that because I had never lived in Europe and my parents hadn't in the past, God knows, 30 years, um, we are, I'm essentially a European passport holder, but I, I don't qualify for a free university. So they told me you need to work and pay taxes for at least three years before you can apply to get university for free. At that moment, of course, like I said, there's currency control. The relationship with my dad is severely falling apart at this point. And now I am living in London, which is a very expensive city by myself, which I've never been to. And I can't go to university for free anywhere in Europe. And that's really where I would say like my relationship with money became, it changed because I came from a very comfortable household where I had pretty much whatever I needed. 
to being 100% sort of on my own. I didn't not depend on my parents' money or savings at all. And I now needed to figure out a way to, to pay rent, you know? And I think that was the first time that I was really broke for the first time in my life. And I started working in an ice cream shop. I was working like double shifts, like 12 hours, um, just living in a tiny little room that I was renting from a woman that rented it from the government. And she was like renting it to me under the table, you know, like times were, were a bit tough at that time. Um, I was, I was eating something called a, a three pound deal meal, meal deal, no three pound meal deal, which is essentially a sandwich, a drink and a bag of crisps. And that was like my lunch every day for God knows how long. Um, just because it was three pounds a day and like, it's what I could afford. But that's, I think like that time allowed me to, I think maybe what it did is that it injected a lot of fear in me because I felt like I didn't have that, that safety cushion anymore to fall back on, uh, with regards to my parents' finances or anything like that. And I needed to just now find and make a, a living of my own. So I started sort of working my way from an ice cream shop. From the ice cream shop, I then moved into the Apple store and I worked in, you know, front of house and Apple welcoming customers. Then from there, I went and worked as sort of like the executive assistant of a guy that the company essentially sold FMCG goods to smaller stores. And from there, like I started assisting the sales team and from the sales team that I became kind of like started selling trucks of Pampers to the Scandinavian market, like the most random thing ever. <laughs> From there, I moved to sell advertise, advertisements for an insurance magazine. And then from there, I started doing events. And then I did like massive tech events here in Asia. So like, you know, it's been a very strange hopping around, doing everything I could, chasing probably the best salary that I could also at that time. Yeah. And, and so what, when, when, you, when you think about it, so... From, from going from this, uh, what was a three pound meal deal, right? And having no discretionary income. At what stage then uh, throughout that journey that you just mentioned, were you starting to think like, oh, I need to save something. Um, maybe uh, I think I've read before and I, I think I, I, I watched some other interviews of yourself. Uh, and I think, you know, at some point you started to take care of your, your, your mom as well from a financial standpoint, I think. Maybe I'm wrong, but maybe you can tell me a little bit how, how, how has your personal finance journey kind of changed over the last, you know, 15 years or since you're 18 and, you know, going from this $3 meal deal to maybe making a little bit more money, able to save a little bit. Did you, did you not, did you spend more, you know, what, what was kind of that journey like? So it wasn't until I started the job in the advertising magazine that I, I got my first role where I had targets and commission. So until then whatever I was making was a flat salary and I was finishing the month with probably like five pounds on my bank account. And on, in this job, I just worked as hard as I could to hit that target. And for the first time ever, I got a commission, which I remember at that time was 20,000 pounds. That was my, my commission for that, I believe quarter. So I had the option to make 80,000 pounds in commissions, which I mean, it was almost impossible, but when I finally hit my first target and I got my 20K, I had never seen that much money in my bank account. I was, I was ecstatic, ecstatic. And I remember I told myself, you know, if I save all of this, I'm going to get resentful and I'm not going to 
reward myself for the hard work and then I'm not going to do it again. And I need to repeat what I just did, which was hell. So what I did is that I took 10% out and I just said, this is your play money. And then the rest goes in your bank account. And funny enough, for the next 10 years, this is exactly what I've done. So every commission I've ever had, or I've ever made, and look, in one of my jobs before the software company that I was that I was working on, I think one of my highest commissions was maybe like around 80,000 Singapore dollars um, in, in for like a half a year or something like this. So like it was a very good six months and all of that just got saved. So, I mean, I took 10% out like I always do, but that allowed me to start building sort of like a little fund of, of my own and savings. I never really knew what that money was going to be for. I didn't know if it was to like to buy a house. I didn't know if it was just to like be there in case of a rainy day. I eventually, as you said, you know, things with my parents then started really deteriorating. My dad sort of removed himself from like the family unit. And then my mom that is a housewife and hasn't worked in 30 years is now on her own. So she now falls sort of under my care. And luckily having that money and having that uh, ability to, just not, not have to freak out, right? To say, okay, mom, like I know that maybe right now you're going through the divorce and you're super sad. Let me fly you to Singapore so you can be with me or come stay with me for three months in London and you can live with me and, you know, I'll move into a bigger apartment. So like being able to take those little little hits for her sake was a, was, was a luxury and I'm very happy that I was able to do it with some of the money that I had saved. And I think you, you mentioned a lot of good things there, uh, you know, saving 10% of all your commission, uh, spending only 10% to motivate you to keep going and being able to save the 90 is super huge, right? So I think a good point, I always, you know, tell people, especially when it, you know, start saving for retirement, it's like 40 years away. It's so boring, right? It's such a boring topic. Um, but it's kind of like you're, you have to reward yourself along the way, right? You have to have shorter term goals like travel or like, you know, spending money as well because you will need the motivation. It's a, it's a marathon, not kind of like a sprint race, as people say. So I think that that was really cool that you mentioned that uh, and you've done that by yourself uh, from an early, uh, early on when you first started, uh, you know, making commissions. Um, the other thing you said is you set that aside and you saved it, right? Mm -hmm. um, which then allows you to have that, you know, luxury to, you know, have your mom come stay with you for emergencies. You have your own emergency fund. Probably one of the reasons why you could also take a little bit more risk in, you know, moving around the world. Because if you have some savings, it makes life a lot less stressful. Um, where I wanted to go with this is, what did you do with that money? Did you always just um, leave it in cash? Were you interested in investing? at all because a lot of people you know they they save a lot of money they leave it in cash they don't think about inflation they you know it and it happens in other places in the world too even if it's two or three percent it's still inflation and you still don't get any interest uh, on your money mostly in uh, across the western world at least currently so how were you thinking about it or how did did you learn about personal finance did you have friends that work in it I, well, what's kind of the process there for you so actually i am it's almost shameful, but in my family or in my studies, no one ever really talked to me about personal finances, almost at all. And I think the figure of sort of leadership and wisdom in my life with regards to money would have been always my dad. And at the age where I started making money, he was not in my life anymore. So for me, saving was essentially just putting it in my bank account and leaving it in a different bank account so I don't touch it, essentially. That is saving, which now I know that it's almost the same as putting it under my mattress. But 
I didn't know any better. And I, I could hear some of my friends talking about investing or about, um, you know, buying shares. But for me, I also had the challenge that I don't know where I'm going to live next. I don't know what currency I want it on. I don't know who to ask for help. You don't know who to trust. Everyone has an agenda. Um, I don't want to get ripped off. And, you know, this thing that has taken like 10 years of my life and it's literally my blood, sweat and tears and not only mine, but also like it's my it's my security cushion and my mother's, you know, like right now there's there's no plan B except me. So in that regard, I always felt very, very panicky to do anything with it other than just leaving it in a bank account. And I know that that's wrong, but I was just afraid. I was frozen in action because I didn't know where to ask for help. Eventually, maybe a few years ago, one of the companies I worked for, they, they gave uh, employee shares and through I mean, the third year or something, they went through a sale or a merger. So a lot of those shares where we were rewarded, you know, a, a good chunk of money, nothing massive, but like, you know, a, very decent. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this is starting to be real money. And I know that it's not doing anything at this point. I'm already in my late twenties. And I know that, you know, there is such thing as like your money working harder for you and all of these concepts that I've heard and read, but I just don't know how to apply them. And actually right before the apprentice, I essentially, you know, a friend, actually a Rachel, which is our friend that we have in common, um, that she's super smart and switched on when it comes to finances and, I guess someone that I can trust and I to also be vulnerable and, and tell her my shameful truth. She then put me in contact with like a, a financial advisor that she trusts and recommends, you know, and, and I got in touch with him and sort of like got him to help me set up some sort of plan. Right. So like, what can I do with this money? Like, what are my goals, my priorities, where do I need it to go? And just essentially start saving for the future or like in the same way that I am now, but actually with intent. Yeah, no, interesting. And I think you need to find that person, right? Because if the, the, the education systems in the, all across the world, so there's no actually, I don't, I don't have not found one good one yet where they actually teach you about personal finances. And I think it's a shame actually that you graduate high school, um, you know, because like in Germany, you go into an apprenticeship a lot of times, right? Where you work mm-hmm. and study for the next three years. You don't necessarily have to go to university. A lot of the big car manufacturers in Germany, right? That's kind of like what a lot of people do. But even here, they don't, you get your paycheck and now what? Literally no one teaches you savings rates, investing in general. Yeah. And it's becoming more and more important because there is no more government pensions or like no more there's some government pensions, especially Singapore is pretty good about it, but no more corporate pensions. Like my, you know, parents, my, like in Germany, like that worked for 30 years, they worked at Bayer or BMW. There were some really nice pensions, but they're not there anymore. And I, so I think from Venezuela, I'm definitely not going to get it either. So like from a yes. government standpoint, like, again, like I said, I am my plan B. Yes. Yeah, you are. And then that's why people, you know, you need to, you need to, fortify or like build a fortress about you, around your money but then you also need to understand hey how do I make them work for me I think that's always the hard like how do you make that money work for me I work really hard for the money now I need that asset to produce passive income right or you know it's investment return so that I can live off that in the future right so that you kind of re- repeat that over and over and over again what is on my mind is a lot of times people don't talk about their finances very openly with friends right but 
you go on The Apprentice. It's very public. Everyone knows what you get afterwards, right? Yep. So even if they don't know how much you had before or how much you saved, they do know now how much you're making. Yep. And it's not an uh, insubstantial amount. So has that changed how you talk about money? And has that changed how people talk to you about money? Because it's, I, I, I can, it's, it's very exposing, right? So that's where I want to get to. Like, how, how, how has that changed or to the good or the bad, right? It's funny. I, I feel like I'm not a particularly closed off person. I feel like very, very few topics with me are off topic type of thing. But when I was broke, I was very open to talk about money. You know, I was just like, oh, I'm just making a thousand pounds. Like it didn't, you know, it was like the struggle was real. I was living it and I had no shame attached to it. The more money I started making and saving, the more shame I started to develop around it. And I don't really know where, why or, or why that started, but I guess I never wanted to make anyone around me feel like less than me or belittle them or, you know, in, in any way. So I think I started becoming kind of like quite aware of this. But at the same time, I remember working in, in sales, like I normally work around men all the time. So I usually am probably one of the few girls in the team. And I always want to know what the guy is making, because if they're making more than me, I would lose it, especially if I feel like I deserve more. Or I've been there longer. So I'm always trying to find ways to figure out, you know, let's have some beers and let's talk about salaries, <laughs> you know, something like that. But this, this winning this is definitely really, really unique and interesting because as soon as I finished and everyone knew that I won, everyone's like, oh my God, drinks are on you. And I'm like, no guys, like I still need to work for the money. They didn't give me a pot of money. Like here's your gold. I still need to earn it, you know? <laughs> so in that, in that sense, like people make jokes about it. I, I don't think that there's been a lot of changes until the Venezuelan newspaper posted an article about me that said massive picture of me in the newspaper saying, she went from selling ice cream and now she makes $250,000. That's the headline against my face. Like, <laughs> that's, that's a nice uh, clickbait, right? Literally <laughs> overnight, I, I received thousands, like thousands of, of messages and direct messages of people asking me for money and like pictures of them starving, pictures like, you know, begging, saying my family's dying, like messages and messages and messages of, of people in Venezuela that are really unfortunately starving and just reaching out, yeah. asking for money. And that was that was a really unique and very weird situation to be in, you know, because of course I feel for for my country and I see what they're going through. And, you know, it's just such a devastating and also like weird place to be and also you feel a bit like a target you know you feel exposed like you said so I don't know I think like it's it's something quite interesting in my life I'm trying I'm, I'm a little bit shy about it I try to not mention it so like if for example someone asked me like oh so like what do you get if we win the apprentice I say like oh you become chief of staff for for Chatri but like I don't mention the salary um yeah and it's because I guess like I just don't want to brag it's more I'm not I'm not embarrassed. Like, I don't care if I want to talk about it, it's fine. It's just, I never want to come across like I'm bragging or I'm putting myself above someone else, I guess. You do mention that uh, a friend of, uh, of ours, she introduced you to a financial planner. He kind of set up a plan for you. So with now having that money coming in though from, from, from your new job 
and going through the competition, right? Mm-hmm. How has that changed your financial plan? Like, or what's kind of in your financial plan? How, how do you kind of think about investing uh, and life goals in, in general? When I come out of the show and I'm in, I'm already like I finished <laughs> and I know I've won. I booked a meeting with him and I was like, it has to be a meeting in person. And he's like, oh, but we're during COVID. I was just like, it has to be in person. He's like, okay. So we went into this room and I was like, is everything that we discussed confidential? Like, I need to know that this is kind of like almost like lawyer client, you know, confidentiality. He's like, absolutely. He explained to me that he couldn't say anything. And I told him like, okay, I'm about to tell you something that I'm pretty sure no one in your career has ever told you. (laughs) And then he was like, okay. And I was like, do you know the show The Apprentice? (laughs) So I essentially told him about what happened and what I've won and how that has now changed. I mean, this is a guaranteed amount of money you will I will receive by the end of, of, of a certain time, right? So that made us really like for me, of course, prioritize my finances and you know pay for his services and actually take it seriously. Right now I have three portfolios. One, which is my retirement portfolio, where sort of like money goes there for the long run and stays there. And every month I just put in an amount that, you know, constantly is is piling on. Um, Then the other portfolio is kind of like buying a house portfolio. I would really like to buy a property um, at some point. I think I already had the cash to buy the property, but I never really did it because I didn't want to leave myself at zero. So, and I also didn't know how to do it properly or if it was the right investment. So like, I think in that regard, I, it's good that I, that I waited. Um, I was in this rush and this dream of buying a property before 30 I, I had the money before 30. Like, I feel like that was good enough, <laughs> but I never bought it. And then the third portfolio is um, sort of like a m- mom emergency portfolio. My mom is incredibly healthy. She's well, there's nothing to worry about. But I do worry, like if something does happen to her and I need to, let's say, buy a really expensive medical treatment or, you know, my mom is my number one priority. So if I need to literally go back to paying three pounds a day for my meal just so I can buy her whatever she needs to, like I will. And I want to prepare so that doesn't happen. So hopefully I'll never have to use it and that will go into my retirement and it's perfect. But if if I do, then it's there. No, I think <clears throat> super cool how you how you did the three different pots and, you know, saving for them. I, I always encourage people to do the same so you can see progress towards them as well right because you don't see them as one big thing and you just keep saving because that's when a lot of people actually don't take any money out because it has no purpose so i think adding a purpose to to any of your financial goals is super super important and it gets you motivated as well right yeah so um so you have those three pots of money you said you know for example retirement it's there for the long term it's invested Mm -hmm. do you take a, an active interest into actually seeing what are the investments in the portfolio or, or are you more like, Hey, no, you know, I know they're now invested, you know, they ret- get their, you know, average return over, you know, long periods of time. I don't really need to look at it. Or is that something you're interested a little bit in? I, every time that I do cause sort of like my three month review with, with my advisor, like I do take an interest cause he's there to explain. But what happens is because of my knowledge is so limited. A lot of the times I'm just looking at it and I'm like, okay, it's just a graph that kind of like goes up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, and I also feel like the less I focus or think about money, the easier it is for me to save it. Because, you know, the moment that I ra- rationalize the amount of money that is going into a portfolio that I now don't have and it's being locked in, like I can get a bit of anxiety around it. So I have it automatically that on the first everything goes. I don't see it. I don't touch it. 
Well, I think that, that what it shows that you know yourself, right? And I think it's important. So whatever gets you to the goal in the, the best way possible, right? Uh, and, and if that's yeah. taking a step back seat in it and trusting the process, I think that's a, that's a good way to, uh, you know, about knowing yourself. Jessica, thank you so, so much for spending the last hour with us. Uh, really appreciate having you on. No, absolutely. Pleasure is all mine. I, I had a blast. Thank you so much, Philip. That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe and leave us a review. The reviews really help us and we love reading your comments as well. In Your Best Interest is hosted by me, Philip Müller. We're produced by Stashaway and we're mixed by Mo Ramley. Oh,